Okay, it's time to commit. 2024 is the year for prioritizing yourself. Begin your new smile journey with Byte, and you could start seeing results in just two to three weeks. Just order your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95 at Byte.com. Byte Clear Aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces. Plus, they offer financing options, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA, FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot com. Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Man, that sunset is gorgeous. Grill, patio, sunset. Hard to get better than that. Unless you're browsing Carvana's inventory while you soak it all in. Oh, burger time. So sit back, get comfortable. Carvana's got thousands of cars under $20,000 just waiting for you. I could stay here forever. Carvana, where car buying meets comfort meets convenience. Download the app or visit Carvana.com today. Delve into the shadows of the mind with Sleeping Dogs, a gripping murder mystery starring Academy Award winner Russell Crowe. Now available on digital. Crowe portrays an ex-homicide detective unraveling a brutal murder he can't recall. Uncovering secrets from his past, he learns a chilling truth. It's best to let sleeping dogs lie. Visit sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery to watch Sleeping Dogs, now on digital. That's sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery. Welcome to episode 510 with my guest Nanea Reeves. I'm Paul Gilmartin. This is the Mental Illness Happy Hour, a place for honesty about all the battles in our heads, from medically diagnosed conditions, past traumas, and sexual dysfunction, to everyday compulsive negative thinking. This show is not meant to be a substitute for professional mental counseling. I'm not a therapist. It's not a doctor's office. It's more like a waiting room that doesn't suck. Hopefully doesn't suck. Wait, why start off the podcast with shitting on yourself? Oh, it's been an interesting week. Uh, a really, really one of my best friends in the world, I think, has relapsed because he's not returning phone calls and it's just he had started drifting away from recovery, making work the most important thing in his life. And it just breaks my heart because addiction it's like when you get away from the solution, there's a momentum to slipping away and there's a momentum to recovery as well. It's it's very, very hard for somebody to just stay still um, in, in recovery uh, if you're not doing anything uh, in, in terms of helping yourself. And it's only a matter of time until your brain convinces you because one of the things that happens when you stop helping other people, you know, doing a rigorous self-examination of your values and your actions is that you begin to project your anger onto other people and you get so resentful at the world not working the way you want it to that you need some type of relief from that and your brain convinces you that oh it's going to be better this time. It won't be it won't be so bad. And uh I'm fortunate in that uh I've been sober for 17 years and I have not relapsed, but oh, my brain has, has told me many times, 
you know, when I'm scared or things aren't going the way I want them to, just uh, clear out your savings account, move to Seattle, and do heroin until you die. And that's that brings me like a feeling of euphoria just thinking about it. And I've never even done heroin. <laughs> that's oh fantasy. You know, the imagination is such a beautiful gift from the universe. But man, when we turn it on ourselves, the the catastrophizer four thousand. It is. It's got a lot of. A lot of RAM. I want to read a couple surveys before we get to the uh, interview with Nanea. This is uh, a love survey filled out by Sam, and uh, they write, A few things come to mind when I think of what I love. The way my gym feels when I walk in is very welcoming. I can feel that it's a place without judgment. All of us are there for similar reasons, not just to be strong, but therapy. We're all weirdos who love powerlifting. We understand or can relate to one another's struggles and fears, but we bond over a similar hobby. Another thing I love is when my cat, who has since adopted me, she was my fiance's first, gives me head nuzzles. It's a gesture she doesn't do to just anybody, and it really brings me peace. My animals and my fiance bring me joy in all separate ways but that I know they love and appreciate me. They may never understand the anxiety I battle daily, but I know they love me regardless. Just a few of my favorite things. Thank you for those. Those are great. This is from that struggle in a sentence survey filled out by a woman who calls herself me and about her depression. She writes, like my shadow, less visible at times, but always there. Oh, that's such a descriptive accurate one about her ADD like they made sticky notes just for me about her PTSD my only gift from my childhood about being a sex crime victim why me I'm not even that good looking one one of the common misbeliefs about sexual violence is that it has to do with attraction or horniness and it and it's not it's about anger and control uh, thank you for that this is a struggle in a sentence filled out by a guy who calls himself spectacularly unheard it's nice when not being heard reaches olympic levels it and it's difficult it is difficult because if somebody even looks your way and, and nods their head, that counts as, as being heard. So it's hard to get a streak going. About his depression, having to keep up with people swimming in water while you're swimming in jello. About his ADD, like trying to focus on a conversation while toddlers are screaming at random intervals in different areas of the room. About his anxiety, the only way to breathe is to get away from anywhere you go. About his PTSD, when current abuse joins every abuse you ever received, like some fucked up reunion. Uh, what uh, And about what I assume to be borderline personality disorder, it feels like my brain is comprised of the old style flip switches instead of dials that can be finely tuned. Snapshot 
from uh, his life, I've learned so much about myself. Unfortunately, that includes how powerless I am to change myself alone. Too bad when, too bad when I tell my friends to listen, I end up apologizing for something I didn't do right. I wish I qualified for assistance so I could pay for therapy. Any comments to make the podcast better? Maybe have on more people from rural communities where there is more stigma for getting help and less options. Um, and that brings us to our sponsor, uh, which is BetterHelp.com Online Therapy. And it's a, a great solution for people who live in rural communities because a lot of times th- there might not be any options or very limited uh, options for people to get help. And uh, I do believe that they have some financial assistance uh, for people who are struggling financially. Uh, there may be also in your area, there might be uh, free assistance. Uh, a lot of times if you Google low fee or free therapy in your area, that will that will tell you something. But I'm a big fan of, uh, of BetterHelp, and it's spelled uh, better, H-E-L-P. Um, the ad- the uh, website is betterhelp.com slash mental. Make sure you include this slash metal part so they know you came from this uh, website. And uh, it's it's not a crisis line and it's not self-help. It's uh, professional counseling. Uh, it's done securely. And there's a huge range of expertise available. It's worldwide. It uh, meets all legal requirements in all 50 states. And uh, tons of people are doing it, and they're constantly expanding. And you guys can get 10% off your first month at betterhelp.com slash mental. That's betterhelp.com slash mental. And then finally, this is a struggle in a sentence survey filled out by a woman who calls herself anyone a doctor around here a snapshot from her life she writes imposter syndrome being a short woman from a working class background with an abusive childhood working with tall confident middle class males in medicine it doesn't help when they touch my head and call me cute oh that's good that's got to be angering uh And about her imposter syndrome, she writes, the next sentence I say will make them realize I'm an idiot. Oh, okay. I got away with that sentence. Oh, it's because the next sentence I say will make them realize I'm a complete idiot. Repeat nine hours a day, five days a week. And about her anxiety, like there's a deadly tarantula stuck in my hat, but I absolutely have to act like everything is perfectly fine constantly. And God, I hope no one asks me why I'm wearing this hat. Every little thing feels like the end of the world. The darkness came so quickly. I was so fucking angry. Make me as close to dead as possible. And I felt so powerless. Without the commitment. If there's a word for it, unbearable. It means somebody else felt this way. The feeling is so intense. It is a lot more work. I was frightened all the time. To feed a child's emotional world. Everyone feels pain. Than it is their superficial world. Everyone suffers. My sexual addiction was the shame. My mom ended up killing that woman in front of me and my brothers. I had to feel that shame in order to feel the pleasure. And I was being a dick to everybody. We are social beings. And the only way you're going to get it out is to cry. We need to be with people. I grabbed them by their throats and led them down to the floor and watched the breath leave their bodies. Maybe well, listen, thanks people. for coming in. <laughs>
I'm here with Nanea Reeves, who just blew my mind. Uh, you reached out to me uh, a while back and said, uh, well, tell me what you, what you said. I can't remember. Well, it, what, we met through Matt Vogel at the National Mental Health Innovation Center, right? Yes, yeah, yes. So. And uh, one of the things that Matt uh, focuses on is new ways to treat mental struggles. Mm-hmm. And you have this, well, tell me about, about TRIP. And by the way, this is, this is not a uh, paid advertisement for what you're doing. I, I said, well, why don't you come over? I'll try your device and program, and, uh, and then we'll go from there. Right. <laughs> uh, and here we are. And here we are. I just experienced it about 15 minutes ago. And it blew my fucking mind. It blew my motherfucking mind. I love that so much. So uh, explain what it is uh, technologically, and then maybe I can share what I experienced. Uh, oh, yeah. I'd, I'd let you, because you saved that for this moment, and I'd love to hear it. Yeah. So Trip is, uh, we're a very early stage company, and we have built a virtual reality service, which you can find out more about on Trip.com. We take VR and the immersion of VR and use that as a container to take you through an experience that captures your attention through gameplay mechanics and we incorporate some mindfulness structures and sound frequencies, and it's all designed to change the way that you feel. And it's an engine that has a lot of infrastructure that we've been you know, building out for the last three years. And I can talk about some of the things that we found out along the way and some of the research we're involved in. But really, at its core, it... Our goal was to see, can we give people a sense of agency over how they feel? That we've been in a society that has um, messaging to us that we need to always be on this road of constant self-improvement, which in its core creates this feeling of a sense of lack and not being enough. And I found throughout the years with my meditation practice that it allowed me to see different versions of myself that came from within, even just by creating the space to stop my mind from the noise. To, to take a step back and observe yep. the way your mind is talking to you. Completely. Even just that self-talk, when you slow down and you hear that, uh, you can start to make little micro decisions on how to change that. So what we saw VR, virtual reality, as this wonderful tool, the immersion of it, to allow you to be present and then perhaps plant some seeds to help you reframe the way you view yourself and uh, your relationship to the world. And in many ways... It's a digital analog to a lot of the psychedelic science that's emerging. I I was just going to say it is the closest thing to psychedelic experiences that I have ever had. I I, uh, shared with Nanea that I had uh, 
done ketamine treatments, uh, through a doctor, uh, maybe six months ago. I have treatment resistant depression and I have tried so many things. And for the most part, meds, you know, get me to about 70, 80% where uh, I want to be. But I thought, I'm interested as a podcaster in trying this out. And I'd also like to see if it, if it helps with my depression. And it, uh, the experience I just had with trip visually is in, I would say 90% similar to what I experienced with ketamine. Really? Because yes. I haven't done ketamine, but I know one of our developers called the tunnel section. The nickname yes. internally was the K-hole. <laughs> and I said, what does that mean? And he said, yeah. So, so similar. I got schooled on that. And then a ketamine clinic director had been having his patients during session use trip. He had mentioned there's a void when you do ketamine. That can be scary to people, and they found that the uh, combination was very helpful. Uh, we don't make any therapeutic claims right, right now on what what we're doing, and our consumer product is more about can we hack, which you tried, can we hack um, uh, mindfulness or the effects right. of mindfulness? Uh and I can say at the very least whether there is going to be any data that this um, alleviates depression or anxiety or whatever, throw that all off the table. It's just a really, really cool experience. <laughs> Thank you so much. <laughs> uh, it it's, I can't wait to buy myself uh, and you use oculus we're on oculus now we'll be launching on playstation in november and then there's these the really cool new devices starting to come out that look like sunglasses Mm -hmm. the first one uh, that we'll be working with is from a chinese company called nreal and qualcomm makes the chips that power it i'm getting a little into the plumbing but there's this whole revolution of moving computing, you know, it started with the keyboard and the desktop, and then we got laptops and we got Palm Pilots, and it started moving into the hand, which we're all pretty much doing a lot of our computing. Pretty soon, computing will move to the head. Mm-hmm. And there's a few really cool things when that happens, which is you can do these overlays of alternate experiences with reality. And so virtual reality to me is the most immersive, but you're fully conscious. So it's really interesting. If you think about it, taking a psychedelic is like an immersion. You just don't have control over the experience. And it it is really being generated from within. We're not looking to replicate that, but we think that there's ways that we can help support those kind of solutions or interventions, Uh, you know, some people might approach that those ketamine sessions or psilocybin mm-hmm. is now in FDA approval and MDMA for treating PTSD with some fear mm-hmm. and anxiety. It can be scary to let yourself go. So we're kind of a an easy an easy so trip. <laughs> very, yeah, that's a, that's a great way of of putting it. It's after the ketamine treatments, I would feel nauseous and and dizzy. And uh, the the cab ride home was uh, never fun. I mean, it wasn't like it was a horrible post uh, uh, session experience, but 
what I liked about what I just experienced is there was none of that, but I, I got to experience immersion. Immersion. And yeah. there's some benefits to that, right? And what we found early in our, our prototyping was that it's a weird thing. Do you know this concept of uncanny valley when you see a robot and you kind of go, oh, there's something not right about this? Uh, there's the same thing in virtual reality when you put someone on a beach and maybe you have a guided meditation on the beach. While it might be pleasing and relaxing, there's a part of your brain that goes, wait, this doesn't smell like a beach. It doesn't feel like a beach, but it looks like I'm at the beach. What's happening? And it right. gets... So uh, kind of di dissonance. Yeah, sensory dissonance, exactly. And so what we thought was, could we just get somebody in a state of triggered awe? And there's something about awe that creates kind of a transformative state of just feeling connected in a yeah. way. And so those were kind of the things that we started to experiment with. And I, it, I really liked that it looked like nothing I that's, knew. That's part of your ability to get right into it yeah. and go, wow, right? It's, but it also puts some pressure on us. Like, how do we? So we created this engine that updates it daily, and that was my first uh, yeah, concern. Was if I did it every day with that same thing, it would begin to to lose its its impact somewhat. Yeah. However, as you know, with meditation practice, which there are a lot of similar benefits, it's just harder to get up the mountain, right? It's a yeah. slower path. There are benefits to the repetition. Mm. And so we also have to learn in an overstimulating environment, which we all are. Our brains are changing with all these data streams that we're subjected to. And when computing goes, you know, closer to the head with spatial computing, it, the distraction level. I can see a future where we're going to be having a family dinner and saying, okay, everybody, devices off the head. Let's yeah. all be present. And But what I would like to do is be part of the solution to help us all get present, you yeah. know, because I just have seen the benefits in my own life, you know, uh, on the topic of your podcast. Well, I was taught how to meditate at age 15, after a psychotic episode where I was um, put on a 5150, which is the 72-hour hold. Oh, we're quite familiar yeah, with Yeah, yeah. Okay. Well, I, you're gonna, yeah. we should do the 5150 trip, right? Yeah. You know, in many ways, what was this horrible life experience for me at such a young age, um, uh, I was able to connect with this therapist who I was having a panic attack in her office and she was talked, this during your stay? Uh, it was after. So okay. she was my follow-up care. Gotcha. And she, in that panic attack, she was a longtime meditation practitioner. I've been to Nepal. And this was a long time ago before all this mindfulness sort of mm -hmm. drive-through meditation. We have all these apps, which I think are great because it democratizes the access. But she taught me this breathing technique that she had learned from these Tibetans. And it immediately calmed me down. So she started to carve out a portion of our meditation, our, our therapy session to teach me how to meditate. And I think it was the greatest gift in my life because it taught me, you know, how to insert these little gaps. And you could see in the experience that you did, um, 
you know, it's really about learning the value of that space in between. Yeah. You know. Anything else that you would uh, you would like to share? Um, people can it's it's spelled T R I P P. Yeah, and I, I you know I was really more interested in the topic of your podcast, you know, as well because I mean obviously I could, I love to talk about trip and what we're doing and it's really right. fascinating. There's this whole new category of uh, uh, digital therapeutics that are. We have two, not we, the industry from a company called Pair Therapeutics has seen two mobile apps in the area of substance use disorder get approved by the FDA. Wow. And there's a video game on an iPad from Achille Interactive that just got approved by the FDA for ADHD. And so there's this new emergence of using technology for good purposes. And if you think about you know we've gotten very sophisticated if especially with social media algorithms on how to make you feel badly enough in a way that it'll incite a purchase to fix you right uh, but we can use those same methods for positive outcomes it's just you know how do you measure that who determines what's positive how do you work with medical and uh, ethics committees to make sure there are some guardrails so you're not yes. doing damage because i'll tell you one of the biggest requests we get from our oculus audience is for bad trips oh my god that <laughs> can you imagine the last thing that, that i would want <laughs> yeah it's a bit depressing when you think about the depth of access that uh unsavory corporations have and the things that they can do. And I, I said to my girlfriend the other day, because we were talking about the breach of privacy that mm. some companies are founded on, and mm -hmm. then they sell that is the, the Gestapo has become digitized. Yeah, you know, but it is there is a value exchange, too, because a lot of us expect content for free. There's quite a few generations who've grown up. So you are exchanging your privacy for free content. And I think that there's opportunities to change that where I can determine how you monetize my content mm -hmm. and my data. And if I'm the product, let me participate in the revenue. Right. You know, and so I think you're going to see some innovation in this area. I think about it a lot. I've been very conscientious about making sure I get v good guidance on how we collect data. And mm -hmm. because for me, I feel as CEO of this company with this mission that we have to create a lot of trust with our end user mm -hmm. in a way that they feel safe. And psychological safety is one, but also, you know, data safety and all of these things are. Um, Oftentimes you have the best intentions, but you can inadvertently open up a can of worms that you didn't even know you were heading, you know, heading toward yes. the iceberg. Yeah, one of the things that I think is really problematic is is corporations will have you sign a eight page waiver about data privacy, and most of us just want to get to the thing that we're looking for. And we think, well, if everybody's signing this, it can't be that bad. Yeah. And uh turns out for a lot of them, it is that bad. 
Yes, and there have been some laws put in place that protect the end user in ways where you can request your data be deleted, which you know wasn't always the case. And so people are getting more hip mm-hmm. to data and privacy, but definitely read your EULAs, the user agreements, and uh, uh, look at how your data is being collected and um yeah, there's, I mean, it's a hot topic. But I was also interested because uh, you and I were talking before about both being, you know, in um, recovery and yes. and support groups. Yes. And, and you've been sober for 30 plus years. Yes. And because in that meditation, you know, therapeutic setting with therapy, uh, therapists, I was able to really at a very early age see a different vision of myself, um, the potential for that. And that's where I see kind of the container of meditation. If you think about it, like, it's, it's such a, an amazing, um, journey just to pause. (laughs) And then make hard, it's so hard, but then you start to realize, Oh, I'm having a feeling. And then I make a conscious decision that's so fast to turn up the volume on that and attach a really strong, or even just I have a thought, then I attach to the feeling, and then I'll even attach a memory on it. Mm-hmm. And I'm by slowing down, I can actually see myself and unpack that and go, oh, all I have to do is just honor the thought and stop and look at it and maybe even go, oh, maybe I should look at it this way. It's very similar to journaling. Exactly. When, when you have to form a sentence and write it out, especially longhand, uh, it gives you enough time to really dig deep and to step back and, and look at it. And, and it, when it's one of the reasons why I think support groups and therapy are so helpful. When you have to form a sentence about what you're thinking or feeling, right. you slow the ping pong ball down enough that you can see what color it is. Well, maybe we should make an experience where you're slowing a ping pong ball down yeah. with just focus and attention. That would be a good one. Uh, and, and you can customize the ping pong ball to look like a parent. Uh, we, yeah, you know, our mobile app allows you to upload images into the experience. Oh so you God. could do that. Oh yeah. So God. it gives you feeling of control and power. Oh, my God. So I have a question for you then, knowing that you're in and it's OK if we make this bi bi-directional in conversation. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. I, absolutely. OK. Um, so you're in recovery mm-hmm. and you did ketamine treatments. And mm-hmm. how do you think about that? Because I have um, spoken to some of my friends about this explosion that's going to happen soon once MDMA gets approved for treating PTSD, which it will. Yeah. And psilocybin's down the FDA approval path right now by some very well-funded companies. Mm-hmm. And we sort of have a brand that's psychedelic in nature. And as we find out, uh, you know, we're in research right now around addiction recovery Mm -hmm. through a grant we received from the NIH. And how are these support groups going to wrap their heads around it? And I'd love to hear your own personal rationale for that. And I can share a very personal experience um, myself with it. Well, first of all, that's a great question. And for me, the the first question to ask yourself when you're 
considering if you're a sober person and you are considering having a psychedelic experience is what is your intention? What is your goal? Mm-hmm. Um, if, if your, uh, intention is to escape parts of your life that you don't want to look at, um, and responsibilities that you have, and if it's degrading your life or the lives of those around you, um, be it making you want to go back to your drug of choice or you're ignoring your family or your job, that gives you your answer about whether or not you should do it. Uh, the other uh, question that I asked myself before I did ketamine was, um, am, am I doing this on my own or am I doing it under the care of a doctor? Mm-hmm. And I did it under the, the care of a doctor. As did Will, Bill Wilson, the right. founder of Alcoholics Anonymous. Right. right. And those were the two uh, questions that, that I asked myself, and I was very clear on those. You know, if if I had decided that every Saturday night I was going to get together with my buddies and eat mushrooms, I think that would have been a lot more complex of a uh, of a question. Uh, but I... I know there will be tremendous controversy mm-hmm. in recovery groups about this, but ultimately you are the person in charge of your sobriety. Right. And, but I think it's important to reach out and ask people whose opinions you trust before you make a, a decision. And each person's um, journey is their own journey. And uh, it's ultimately about improving the quality of our lives, whether it's our outside life or it's our inside life. Well, and and there was a similar struggle with antidepressants. Yeah. And when I hear people, especially old timers in support groups saying, if you're taking antidepressants, you're not sober, I want to punch them in the face, Mm -hmm. you know, and the thing that we say to them sometimes is, um, show me your degree in medicine. Oh, you don't have one? Then you should probably keep your opinion to yourself because you might be uh, opinionating someone into uh, suicidal ideation. Well, and I read a wonderful pamphlet from the um, uh, Alcoholics Anonymous General Service Mm -hmm. Organization on AAs and other medications and uh, and they have that similar stance that we're not doctors and uh, that, you know, that is uh, an outside concern. You know. But, you know, it's interesting. I had someone say they couldn't help somebody who was on antidepressants because they didn't have that experience. And I said, well, would you not help someone who was in cancer treatment if you hadn't been through cancer? Do you know? And so what I I love right now, we're at a time where the stigma around mental health and dealing with these issues are, um, you know, it's being pulled off the covers. And even those who don't have mental health diagnoses, we struggle at times. Um, So going back to the substance uh, or treatment through a molecule, Mm -hmm. um, you're talking about DMT? Well, or uh, even uh, psilocybin or uh, my sister just struggled with addiction and alcoholism in the worst way. And in many ways, we came from the same place. And I 
you know, after that psychiatric support that I got, I was able to kind of take a right turn and get help and support. And, and she kept going. It was almost like the alternate reality version right. of my own life had I continued down that path. And after time, like it just got worse and she started turning to harder things. I really think she was self-medicating trauma. You yeah. know, I, I I love to listen to a lot of Gabor Mate's mm-hmm. um, I, ideas around trauma and um, addiction. And I really think my sister was a, a reflection of that or and an she, example. she died of an overdose? She did. She died in 2012. Um, but prior to her death, she had reached out to me and my husband uh, and had asked if we would help her get sober. She wanted to go to a clinic in Mexico where they did the ibogaine mm-hmm. treatment. And we were very close-minded to it. We said, that's not the way you do it. You mm-hmm. know, you don't take something to help you get sober. You go into treatment. And, you know, we were very rigid. And it was the only time in her entire journey that she had a willingness. And we were so close-minded. And I look back at that moment and I thought, what if? Because since then I've met the doctor who ran mm-hmm. that clinic and he's very credible and, you know, the research that he produced, you know, seems to indicate some very positive um, outcomes. And, uh, you know, I'm not an advocate for that, but it, I just think the more the lesson for me in that was our closed mindedness. Maybe if we had been more open minded might she even still be here? Do you know? Yeah, because not negating something doesn't mean you're endorsing it. It just means you're withholding your opinion and encouraging somebody to uh, maybe do more research and ask more questions before they uh, pull the ripcord. Uh, That's another really good point. I hadn't really thought of it that way, that even our willingness to explore it and investigate it might have been led us somewhere else, do you know? Right. But it was just like, no, that's not the way. Mm-hmm. And then, you and know. That, and that, uh, sorry to interrupt you, yeah, but sure. that person feeling a sense of self advocacy by trying uh, a, a treatment, whether it works or not, it may kick them off on a, on a journey of feeling like, um, maybe they're getting a little more self-love and self-care in their in their life. And so they want to start seeking because the act of seeking to me is life-changing and one of the most fundamental aspects of uh, recovery, whether it's mental illness, addiction, etc., uh, spiritual, just, you know, you don't have to know whether or not a higher power exists just by saying, uh, I surrender the idea of me controlling everything in the universe I come into contact with mm. is a, a spiritual act. Right. And and pe- everyone, like you said, has their own journey. And the choices may be different for each person. How do we make them feel more empowered in their ability to take care of themselves ultimately? Because at some point, moment in time it is only going to be that right and so you know i i thought about a lot about the it's really fascinating to read a lot of the literature around when bill wilson the founder of alcoholics anonymous went to the va Mm -hmm. and got introduced to lst therapy Mm -hmm. 
And because it was therapeutic then. It, 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 well, it, it yeah. was before it was illegal. Right. And they um, were, he was doing it under the care of a doctor, a therapist, and uh, he actually did uh, supposedly with Father Dowling and a few of his sponsees as well. And in one session, he really felt like this tremendous healing, according to some of his letters, around um, a deeper understanding of how the lack of love he felt from his father had, you know, been the foundation for a tremendous lifelong depression, which hit him full force when he was about 15 years sober, you know, and so that's what made him go seek more support and uh, yeah, so it's, it's just, it's kind of a fascinating environment right now where you have Johns Hopkins, Mass General Hospital, um, out of Harvard, and they've, they've, uh, they've got new psychedelic research institutes. Mm-hmm. And you have very um, credible neuroscientists and psychologists looking at this space. And then you have this other category of, you know, what I call DTX or digital therapeutics arising. And we have emerged as a digital psychedelic or one doctor at Cedars calls trip a cyberdelic and his new, uh, Brennan Spiegel. He's a wonderful doctor out of Cedar Sinai who's been using VR therapy uh, in his practice there for gastro-related issues. And he wrote this book that's coming out in a couple of weeks called VRX, and it has a lot of detail on the virtual reality um, solutions out there for addressing different mental health issues. So you can do some really cool things with um, trauma and PTSD with simulation exposure therapy in ways that's more safe. Yeah. And you feel more in control of, and uh, there's a lot of experimentation. And so he's got this book coming out that we're featured in. I'm really excited about it because, you know, who would thought we would be here? I think my hippie parents, you know, if they were alive right now, their heads would be exploding. That people are using at Johns Hopkins Hospital psychedelics to treat, you know, different mental health issues or (laughs) one of the the things that i think is is important too if you're going to have a psychedelic experience is the uh setting that you Mm. do it yeah who you are with because my first experience with psychedelics was taking acid on a bus trip for a high school ski club uh that was 10 hours long and an hour into it the acid kicks in full force and I am hearing a cartoon turtle uh, talk to me while it spins down a vortex and I feel like I'm going to throw up and I'm paranoid and I have to gather every bit of metal fortitude to get through this thing for the next nine hours. It was not a pleasant experience. No. It was a mistake to take it the way uh, the way that I, I did. Well, and for those of us who've experienced a lot of childhood trauma, like myself mm-hmm. and um, uh, others, it's very important that you be supported. Mm-hmm. And also, you can't take them if you are on antidepressants. There's, there's some issues with... Um, uh, a conflict there. So you have to be very careful. 
so any I, antidepressant or all antidepressants? I think there's a category. I don't know enough about it, but we can certainly make some follow-up. Oh, yeah. Actually, now that I think of the it. The MAOIs. Yes. Yeah. Uh, there, uh, before I did the ketamine treatment, I believe that uh, one of the meds I was taking, I stopped taking for uh, 48 hours before. It, it might have been uh, Lamotrigine mm-hmm. uh, or, or Lamictal, which one is thing an we'll do with the follow-up on this is uh, we can link to some information or um but i do think that the you know they're not i think it can be very damaging in the wrong set and setting and the protocol that maps which is the organization driving a lot of the um uh the mdma um ptsd uh, approval research they are um they're defining a protocol that really creates a lot of safety mm-hmm. for the for the person. And you'll see in ketamine, there's some variations, right? It's mm-hmm. just get this session or they're set and setting. I know this wonderful doctor in uh, Northern California, Jennifer Dorr, mm-hmm. who really thinks about the set and setting in a way where um, it's kind of like medicine meets shaman. She's a doctor, mm-hmm. but it is, you, you really do have to feel supported, I think, in yeah. a way that works for you. And so there are all, a lot of experimentation on that yes. that I think is interesting. Yeah, when I did the ketamine treatment, uh, I was in a hospital bed. It was done intravenously, uh, and each session would take about, uh, I don't know, 45 minutes to an hour. And did then, you get the infusion? I or, did. Uh-huh. I did. Um, it wasn't uh, microdosing. It was, mm-hmm. I think I did four different, uh, four sessions. Mm-hmm. And uh, it was in a hospital bed with warm blankets, headphones, and a blindfold. Mm-hmm. And so it, it did feel very uh, safe. There were a few moments where I felt like it was maybe uh, in that void where it might turn into a bad trip. Um, but I managed to you know, uh, bring some positive thoughts into it. There was never a time when I was not aware that I was in that hospital bed doing ketamine treatments. Oh, interesting. It, I, I haven't done it, so it's fascinating. Yeah. Um, but I do know we saw, we saw some increased usage mm-hmm. on our application, and um, uh, this was pre-COVID. Mm-hmm. And... Then we started getting a lot of inbound um, communication from these doctors that had grabbed our consumer product and were experimenting with it with their patients. And um, in those sessions, it's more like a mindful framework Mm -hmm. for even getting them a little ready for the experience. So that was cool that it was kind of an organic use case for it. I don't know. I think it's an interesting time for all of us right now. It really is. You know, we're under a lot of stress. And uh, and I was reading a study about how this outrage cancel culture is mm-hmm. actually there's um, a dopamine rush you get from it. Yeah. You know, I, it's that anger. You, we're getting addicted to it. It's like, oh, my God, can you believe what he said now? And everybody tribes up and and it's feeling a part of, you know, there's some benefits to it that we're getting addicted to. I, I definitely believe that because I I feel like the easiest thing in the world when we're doing the compare and despair about where we are in the world and our lives it's so much easier to push somebody down to feel like we're moving up mm-hmm. than it is to 
do more complicated, uh, work intensive ways of, uh, feeling like we're growing as a person. Yeah. There's this guy you might know, Al Signs. Do you know Mm-mm. him? Um, He's kind of pretty active in support group community, and he he passed away, but he used to, which is why I can say his name, um, he would say, we focus on the, if we imagine we're a teapot, and we focus on the steam coming out of the kettle, which is uh, kind of the defect of character or the thing, you know, ruminating or being judgmental or being de- angry all the time. Mm-hmm. But what you really want to do is look at the fire underneath that's heating the water in the kettle it's as the underlying th- thought. Such a great analogy. It's so true. And, F- fear and resentment uh, are at the, the core of um, mentally, I don't know, uh, metal emotional uh, lack of growth, stagnation, yeah. uh, or, even, or even toxicity. Toxicity. Like, just even thinking about, I am going to call you out on your bad behavior. Mm-hmm. It, if I really unpack that and I look at the um, underlying thought, why do I feel the need to do that? And right. why does it feel good to me? And it's healing some part of me that doesn't feel good enough. So I have to pump myself up at your expense. Yeah. And then obviously, you know, I can't sit with that for a long time. So I have to go and apologize and do right. all of that. That's sort of my modus operandi in life. And, um, but it's really kind of looking at how do I heal that? You know, that that pers- that little voice inside of me that makes me feel small and I collapse into, you know, what Ram Dass calls the mini-me, mm. you know, or we've heard, also heard it called it king baby, right. you know, or queen baby. Uh, and I can actually feel myself getting small as opposed to when I have more of a compassionate mindset. I do feel more open-hearted, more compassionate, and... Uh, and so those are kind of the things I've been playing with in my meditation and even some of the experiences we've been designing in trip that how do we make you feel more expansive? You know, when you have a, an awareness that goes beyond your skull, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, and you start to get this um, sense of a bigger sense of self that's more connected and included. And, you know, f- flow state is something to really look at when well, a lot of the reasons why video games are so popular is because they trigger flow states. Mm-hmm. And flow states get triggered by a few things. Uh, embodiment, where you really feel like your your body in, in space, mm-hmm. which is why you can get into it through physical mm-hmm. activity or rhythm-oriented things. A skill-challenge ratio, where you're trying to do something that's just slightly beyond your skill and it keeps you focused on mm-hmm. reaching. And you lose the sense of time and you also lose a sense of self. And But you feel like really connected to your experience. And, um, and maybe that's some of the things we seek when we do other substances, yeah. you know, to self-medicate. But it's definitely why people, uh, it's what makes a game fun and if it's out of balance, it doesn't work, right? You go, oh, this is not fun. It's too hard or it's too easy. 
And so we have to, I think these flow states are really important. Um, We become higher performing when we're in them. They've done a lot of tests. Stephen Kotler has a great book on this, and he has an institute that's actually working on measuring flow where they've done tests with like Navy SEALs where they'll be more, the snipers will be more accurate when they're in a measurable state of flow. And so I think about that a lot, too. How can we create these, use technology in these ways where we can prime ourselves so we can be more effective, we can be better? But I also think you have to combine that with this open heart and cultivating compassion because what we are lacking right now is a lack of compassion and empathy for each other, but it starts first with for ourselves. Couldn't couldn't have said it better myself. (laughs) I agree so much so much uh anything else you'd like to share before we go no it, it was, we just went the full circle from vr to yeah. <laughs> psychedelics to flow state and those are all the things i really love i'm very grateful for the opportunity to just be here and be doing what i'm doing you know i, I could have ended up like my sister and you know a lot of um what I've been able to produce through this has really, it it emerged from uh, the grief of losing my husband to cancer six years ago. And I kept thinking, what do I want to do with my life that will have, you know, meaning and impact and want to create that for the team that's building this product that they feel a sense of purpose and accountability, you know, to helping people feel better and, I just feel really um, grateful that I have the opportunity to have an idea and be able to bring it to fruition so that someone like you could experience it. And and we'll see. I'd love to come back in five years and we'll see how it's evolved, right? (laughs) Uh, Nanea, thank you so much. You're welcome. It was great to meet you. Many thanks. We recorded that about, I don't know, three, four weeks ago. And in the meantime, I purchased the uh, virtual reality goggles and, uh, and got the subscription to, uh, to trip. And, uh, it's pretty cool. It's pretty cool. And my girlfriend digs it also. Uh, what I've also been digging with the goggles is all the zombie shooting games. Holy fuck. There's some good ones. Arizona Sunshine is a good one. Um, VR Gun Club. Uh, no, no, no. What is it called? Uh, Gun Club VR is a, is a good one. Oh, it, it, it's so nice with all the shit that's going on to find something that just completely takes you away. But there's a fine line between that and avoiding your life. And I, I don't know exactly where that lies, but maybe one of the zombies will tell me. This episode is sponsored by When Breath Becomes Air. When Breath Becomes Air by Paul Kalanithi is the exquisitely observed memoir of an idealistic young neurosurgeon attempting to answer the question, what makes a life worth living, as he deals with his own terminal cancer diagnosis. It's a stunning reminder to live while we are alive. A must-read for anyone in medicine from a doctor-turned-patient. For healthcare workers, expand your view on patient care and the fragile beauty of our mortal lives through Kalanithi's unforgettable words. Some of the questions Kalanithi wrestles with in this book include what makes life worth living in the face of death? 
What do you do when the future flattens out into a perpetual present? When the future is no longer a ladder towards your goals in life? What does it mean to have a child, to nurture a new life as another fades away? When Breath Becomes Air is a number one New York Times bestseller, Pulitzer Prize finalist, and named one of the best books of the year by the New York Times Book Review, People, NPR, The Washington Post, Slate, and more. When Breath Becomes Air is available wherever books are sold. Learn more at prh.com breath. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. This is from the love survey filled out by uh, a person who calls themselves, I'm in a waiting room that does suck. Uh, And they write, I love the first time I knew my rescue dog loved me. I was laying in bed, reading with my dog beside me and happened to look up. Buddy was looking at me with liquid, adoring eyes invisible cartoon hearts pumping out of his head. We held eye contact for several moments before he sighed loudly and snuggled his nose under my arm. I don't know who loves who more. Love that. I love any of the ones that have to do with pets. Uh, This is an email I got from uh, a guy who uh, wants to be referred to as Moon Man. And he writes, Paul... I don't know who else to reach out to. I've thought about talking to my therapist, but I'm not sure I'm quite ready. I don't know where or how to start, so please bear with me. When I was younger, I would inappropriately touch a younger cousin of mine. I was about seven or eight, and they were two or three. I don't know if there was something wrong with me. It stopped a few years later, and I've never had the urge uh, or want to touch a child since it stopped. I don't know if I was sexually abused, and I am repressing, repressing memories. There was an instance I can remember of seeing my sister being touched by a different cousin. She recently told me it went on for years, so I don't know if I have other memories since my sister and I were always together. I used to wet the bed from about 7 to 13. It would be occasionally, and I was usually having a wet dream, although I didn't know that's what it was at the time. I told my mom about the touching when it was still going on, and she consoled me and told me it would be okay. Nothing nothing ever happened after. Not sure if she told my cousin's parents or not. We never spoke about it since. I vaguely told my sister about it not too long ago when she opened up about her trauma. Sorry for the rambling. I just don't know what to do. I would never harm a child and have no thoughts or wants, but I can't figure out why I did such terrible things as a child. Please help. Sincerely trying to sort this out. And I wrote him back and said, you were a child. And who knows what happened to you? It doesn't matter. It's time you stop beating yourself up. The important thing is that you stop doing it and have no urges to do it again. That is what matters here. Talk to yourself like you would a best friend, not your worst enemy. You are clearly a kind and compassionate person. And it's time to let yourself out of your self-imposed prison. I encourage you to share it with your therapist because I think you would benefit from working through the shame that you are still heaping on yourself. There are so many 
byproducts of trauma and uh, you know incidents where we acted less uh, than acted outside of our moral code and a lot of times those are the the biggest things that that fuck with us after the event or events um and we can get stuck in these ruts where it's just self-hatred becomes this dead-end street and it's a shitty place to live you know forgiving ourselves doesn't mean that we um don't care that we harmed somebody This is from the love survey filled out by Kathy. She writes, I love when my corgi Lucy throws a fit because her brother is getting attention instead of her. I love wearing my husband's t-shirts, especially the long-sleeved ones that swallow my arms and half of my thighs. I love when one of my students is unabashedly excited about something and wants to include me. I love when my favorite window seat in my favorite coffee shop is open. Oh, that is such a great one. I love when the comfiest seat in the coffee shop is available. And especially right as you walk in and somebody gets up and vacates it. That is just like the universe giving you a big hug. I love when my husband cooks and makes my plate for me. I love getting into my car to go to work with my coffee thermos and a podcast that's the perfect length for my drive. I love my mom's tortellini soup. Somehow we have the same recipe and I've made it with her dozens of times, but it just tastes better from her kitchen. Oh, those are awesome. Thank you for those. This is a shame and secret survey filled out by a woman who calls herself me. She uh, is in her 30s, identifies as bisexual, was raised in a totally chaotic environment, ever been the victim of sexual abuse. Some stuff happened, but I don't know if it counts. My dad's girlfriend is creepy, but if she fully realized it, she'd probably change. She's been physically and emotionally abused. Um, I was physically and psychologically abused by my mom, emotionally by my dad. Both have apologized and I've forgiven them. That's awesome. Um, any positive experiences with them? Both my parents are brilliant, creative people. I don't know if that answers the question, though. Um, that that answers the question are your are your parents uh you know interesting bright people but you can have brilliant creative parents that are neglectful and uh darkest thoughts i have a vivid imagination i'd like to kill myself but i can picture exactly how it would go and how devastated my loved ones would be so i don't darkest secrets in December of 2014, I was near blackout drunk. I wrote my mom text messages to take care of my sister. I wrote a physical note. I don't remember what I wrote. I vaguely remember tying an extension cord into a loop to the towel bar in my bathroom. I vaguely remember feeling the cord against my jaw, my neck, and something made me just quit and go to bed to sleep. The police axed down my door. When they came... When they carried me out, I saw the shards of wood on the floor. I was in the hospital for about two weeks. Sexual fantasy is most powerful to you. I have this weird thing about empathy. Imagining another person getting off seems to do it for me. <laughs> it is not weird. That's awesome. 
What, if anything, would you like to say to someone you haven't been able to? Uh, Paul, thanks. You've done a great deal to destigmatize mental illness, and you've successfully done it in an entertainment format. Kudos. Well, you're very welcome, and thank you. What, if anything, do you wish for? Happiness, wealth, health, appreciation. Have you shared these things with others? I give my therapist and dear friends a lot of credit. How do you feel after writing these things down? Good. Anything you'd like to share with someone who shares your thoughts or experiences? You will be on the other side of this. There are a lot of really good people in the world. Oh, that's so, so, so true and so hard to remember or even feel or think when, when we're stuck in that dark place. This is from the love survey filled out by Steph. And uh, she writes, I love the place, the home. I love the place, the home I have created for myself. I love waking up early, drinking hot tea, writing in my journal, and just taking things slow. I love that. I have the courage to live my life authentically, even though I grew up in a family full of secrecy. That is an accomplishment. That, you know, when we grow up having to wear a mask or play a certain role to get by, we begin to think that that's who we are. And unless we kind of have a reshift in focus and, and do a lot of internal work, we may play that role or wear that mask for the rest of our lives and never even realize it. And somebody who hasn't even known us for five seconds can look at us and go, oh yeah, that that... That's not, that person is not being their authentic self. It's amazing. This is a shame and secret survey filled out by a woman who calls herself Blood Puppy. She's in her 50s, identifies as bisexual, was raised in a pretty dysfunctional environment, ever been the victim of sexual abuse. Uh, one she reported, and the other uh, she's not sure if it counts. Uh, my my paternal grandmother used to take a bath every day with me in the bathroom. She used to take a washcloth and masturbate while I was watching. I didn't know what it was at the time, but later flashed on it and realized what she was doing. I am angry with her. She died a long time ago, but I don't forgive her. She was a sick fuck. She's been physically abused and emotionally abused. And if that was the the, the thing that you were saying, I don't know if that counts, that absolutely counts as sexual abuse. You know, uh, uh, somebody doesn't have to touch you to be sexually violating you. It can be verbal. It can be visual. It can just be a vibe because uh, it's not about prosecuting that person. It's about us processing the feelings that are left in the aftermath of it. My dad was pretty abusive when I was little. He used to regularly slap, punch, and spank me with a belt. He also put down and sometimes physically abused my mother. My grandmothers used to lie and say things like, Lisa left the dog poop in the yard and I slipped and fell, so my dad would hurt me when he came home from work. Sometimes I would hide under the bed or in the closet from him. I used to create a fake door in the closet so he wouldn't find me. Of course, he knew where I, where I was but never pulled me out of my hiding place. Any positive experiences with the abusers? It's complicated when the people that are supposed to care for you and protect you abuse you. I can't say I love either of them, but I have somewhat forgiven my father. I'm working on that in the 12-step program I attend. Darkest thoughts. 
I put something down about hurting other people, but I erased it because it's too dark to admit and dangerous for my pro- dangerous to my profession. Darkest secrets that I was molested as a 12-year-old girl by a much older man and believed it was romantic. Sexual fantasy is most powerful to you. Being hurt and beaten. I have not tried this much. I feel apathetic when I think about this. Anything you'd like to say to someone you haven't been able to? I'd like to tell my partner that I don't love him and want to leave. I haven't because I'm scared of being alone. Too many bad things have happened this year, like I was a step away from hospitalization for being depressed and depressed and recently diagnosed as bipolar, and I needed him. That's a tough one, but um, you know, staying in a relationship after it its expiration date is uh, it is a small, small life. And uh, it's so inauthentic, but I know for a lot of people that logistics of, of leaving can be really, really complicated, but sending you some love on that one. Uh, what, if anything, do you wish for? I wish I felt secure in all aspects of my life. I wish I had the job I wanted and would love. I wish I had time to do art again. I wish I was young so I could do everything over. It is never too late to make changes in our life. Our brain tells us, oh yeah, it's too late. But that is not true. I know people that come into support groups in their 60s and 70s and turn their lives around and start living authentically. Have you shared these things with others? Some of the things I've shared, like what happened with my grandmother, I like the shocked expression on the therapist's face. How do you feel after writing these things down? Good and sad. That that would be a great... Thank you for all of those, by, by the way. And uh, that would be a great t-shirt. How am I doing? Good and sad. This is from the love survey filled out by a person who calls himself parentheses. For the last 20 years, my coach has been a second parent to me, allowing me space to open up on my own terms and never showing anything but unconditional love, support, and guidance. When I needed constructive criticism, that's what he gave me. When I needed to get out of my parents' houses, he worked with me on an escape plan and helped me to find a place to live. And regardless of anything I've ever told him about myself, my thoughts, my actions, or my beliefs, he has been there with the constant reminder that he thinks I am wonderful, worthy, and a good person. And he will always be there if I need to talk. My inner voice has long been the voice of my first parents who would criticize everything I did imperfectly. But over the last 20 years, I've slowly begun to hear my coach's words creep in to remind me not to give up on myself before I even get started and to get back out there and put the work in to improve the next time. He listens fully, asks questions, repeats and rephrases my statements to make sure he understands, and he shares some of his own stories to punctuate his reassurance that I'm not just a selfish, emotional vampire, that he he knows beyond a shadow of a doubt that if he needed someone, I would be there. My first parents taught me that it's dangerous to trust other people, but my second parent has has patiently taught me how to connect with another human being, how to begin trusting someone in a healthy way, and how to love someone and feel loved and worthy of it all. Ah, that is so beautiful, and what a what a great example of family is who we choose, not who 
we're genetically linked to necessarily. This is from the love survey filled out by If Only My Name Was Lou, and they write, I love how even 40 years later, sour cream and onion chips will take me back to a time when nothing mattered but buying new comic books or spinning 45s. Oh my God, do I relate to that one. And I always imagine it's barbecue or barbecue potato chips or sour cream and onion, and I'm eating it in a fort that we made. This is from the Shame and Secret Survey, filled out by a guy who calls himself Chill4062. He identifies as straight. He's in his 20s. He was raised in a slightly dysfunctional environment. Ever been the victim of sexual abuse? Some stuff happened, but I don't know if it counts. When I was young, I have vague memories of sexual encounters with my brother and stepbrother. Separate occasions. I've had nightmares about the encounters, too. From what I remember, I wasn't a willing participant, more like I was coerced. He's been physically and emotionally abused. My parents would beat, punch, strangle, kick, just do everything uh, to us for minor things like grades or a simple disagreement. If you had any thoughts differing from them, they would make fun of you, then tell, then hit. The hitting wasn't super often, maybe a couple of times a month, but the emotional abuse was constant. Constant making fun of each other and being told you were a baby if you asked them to stop. And any talk of mental illness or therapy was completely disregarded as, quote, we are not crazy. Nothing I felt mattered. It didn't matter. I'm still not sure if I do. Oh, I didn't matter. I'm still not sure if I do. That is such a great example of the narcissistic uh, parent. There's a great article by uh, Alan Rappaport called Co-Narcissism, and it's about all the ways that our personalities cope when we are raised with a narcissistic uh, parent. And uh, it's about five pages long. You can just uh, Google it. Uh, there, I, I believe we also did a mini episode of this where I just uh, read the article. So if you want to listen instead of read, you can you can Google that. Any positive experiences with the abusers? Kind of. Haven't seen my stepbrother since, but I've seen my brother constantly. We just act like nothing ever happened, and I tend to avoid him and only speak to him when he speaks to me. I still talk to my parents, but pretty infrequently. I've had good experiences with them, which makes me wonder how they could treat me that way. I don't know what I think. That's the thing that's so confusing, is that we can have good and bad memories. And I think ultimately what matters is, you know, are are those people willing to own the bad things? Are they willing to change? And to have a healthier relationship with us. That's that's the really important thing, at least to me. Darkest thoughts. I've thought about child abuse, homicide, suicide, incest, bestiality, necrophilia, everything. I'd never do any of it, mostly intrusive thoughts, but yeah. Darkest secrets. I've stolen and done a lot of drugs. I stole a lot from sick grandparents. I cheated on my girlfriend once. I hit my girlfriend once. I'm sure there's more, but I can't think of anything. I'm pretty okay at containing myself from back, from big things. Sexual fantasy is most powerful to you. Transsexual and gay porn. Uh, sharing that makes me feel good because I never share that. 
What, if anything, would you like to say to someone you haven't been able to? To my parents, that I expect more from them. Don't have children you don't love. And if you love them, listen to them. And hitting never helped anyone and is just an easy way for a quick fix that does way more damage in the long term. To my brothers, fuck you guys. You done fucked me up. Oh, you done fucked me up. What, if anything, do you wish for? I wish to be a good father so I can make sure my six-year-old son doesn't have the problems I do, or if he does, that he knows to get help and he's not alone. I wish that I make my girlfriend happy and give her everything she deserves, which is everything. I wish the world was better. Have you shared these things with others? Not all of it, but most of it with my girlfriend. That's it. She listened and understood, and it was fine, but I still felt the same. How do you feel after writing these things down? A little better, but pretty much the same. It never leaves me. Anything you'd like to share with someone who shares your thoughts or experiences? I wish I could help you in some way. Just don't give up. I have hope it'll be better one day. That's all you need. Hope. Any comments to make the podcast better? Never stop. (laughs) Paul Gilmartin, 2020. Maybe I should throw my hat in the ring. The isolator party. Of course, it would just be me and no vice president. And my only platform would be I promise to make the quarantine permanent. (laughs) And finally, this is a happy moment filled out by Lyndon. And uh, she writes, I'm in my 30s and have remained close to my fourth grade teacher for the last 20 odd years. By and large, I've done pretty well. Married, completed a doctorate in a field I had been interested in since I was 10, solid employment, etc. I haven't told very many people about when I was sexually assaulted as a freshman in college and told by the college president that I brought it on myself. And I maintained a poker face, so not many people knew anything was up. My old teacher and I were having coffee and it came up in conversation how I had ripped that college a new one in a hilariously colorful cease and desist letter in response to donation solicitations. He was reading the letter and giggling at my word choice. Quagmire, balderdash, social atavism, codswallop, and then balked, assaulted? What? Yeah, freshman year of college. I'm very sorry. I had no idea. I later sent a text and thanked him for that supportive response, and he thanked me for trusting him with that information, knowing that I haven't told many people. A couple months later, we were chatting again, and the full details came up. The assault, the stalking, and the ensuing court case and dumpster fire with that college. He later texted me and said, It makes me remember what I already knew about you. You're a strong person. Thank you for trusting me enough to share that. Given that when some people find out that you are a survivor, they view through, they view you through this victim lens and infantilize you. This was really affirming. It's so hard to remember that there are people like, like him out there, and that's that's why for me support groups are so important because it's filled with people like that and a lot of them roll in there sick as fuck but you see them transform before your eyes and and they tell you oh my god you've changed so much and it's it it is uh, a really cool part of 
hanging in there and still being alive. I hope you guys enjoyed this episode. And if you're out there and you're feeling stuck, never forget that you are not alone. And thanks for listening. And I'm counting on your vote. Everybody I know is bizarrely beautifully Everybody fucked up I know in some weird way. Bizarrely beautifully Everybody fucked up in some weird way. Bizarrely beautifully fucked up in some weird way.